Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, our text this morning will be verses 22 through 31. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is, not, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever wished for a, a how-to guide of how to faithfully engage our changing culture? I know for many of us, the rise in secularism, and, and even paganism in our nation is, is very concerning, alarming. And the change can honestly be overwhelming. One glaring example of this change in our times has been what, what newer data trends have shown as a rise of a, of a new paganism. Although it's not really new, all people, whether they, they recognize it or not, worship something. All of us were, were made to worship by virtue of our being made in the image of God. And so humanity seeks after God, and throughout history, as a result of, of the corruption and sin, of our corruption and sin, humanity has, has sought God through all sorts of false pagan practices, pagan religions. And that trend is, sadly, continuing in our day, in what is known as New Age Spirituality. read this week that Pew Research did a, a study in 2018 that found 62% of Americans, American adults, believe in some aspect of New Age Spirituality. And that number grows dramatically age 40 and younger. And this is a diverse group, but, but some common aspects of this neo-paganism are, are the prayer to and even worship of the creation, of, of objects, we could say of idols, 
such as crystals, rocks, trees, the, the moon. So these are thought to be divine in some sense, or, or at least some contain some sort of divine energy that can be tapped into for healing or for, for other positive benefits. It's a way to experience and know the divine, to know God. This is largely coupled with the wicked practices of, of drug use and, and sexual deviance in these groups. Right? These practices are rooted in, in self-fulfillment. Now, I know this probably has not hit Amarillo in the mainstream yet, but I would argue it, it could be coming based on the, the data trends in our nation. And it's this change, coupled just with the rise in, in secularism and the decline in Christianity in our culture, it's this change that I think has led many Christians to feel at a loss. A loss of where to even begin as we're called to be salt and light in this culture, to, to engage the nation with the proclamation of the gospel. Maybe some of you are at a loss and even grieved at seeing loved ones deceived and, and falling into these wicked practices, these, these wicked worldviews. So the question I want to ask is, what are we to do? What is, what is the Christian response? How do we engage this culture, the place where God has placed us, how do we engage it with the gospel? Well, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a, a similar situation to ours. In Acts 17, he is in Athens, which is a similar yet, yet very distinct culture from our own nation. But it's a land that is clearly full of, of pagan idols and, and false worship of God. And what we see in our text is how Paul faithfully engages the culture by, by boldly proclaiming of the one true God. And it's this account of his speech to the Athenians that we're going to study this morning. And it's been my prayer, it's my hope that, that we can see Paul's actions, we can see Paul's words as a guide, a guidebook to our own engagement with the lost in our day. And so we're going to structure our time around three main points that we see in the text. And they all revolve around Paul's engagement with the Athenian philosophers. So first, I hope you like the letter C. First is Paul's confrontation of the Athenians, which we see in verses 22 and 23. And we'll see Paul's case to the Athenians. In verses 24 through 29. And finally, we'll see Paul's call to the Athenians in verses 30 and 31. So Paul's confrontation, Paul's case, and Paul's call to the Athenians. So first, let's look at, at Paul's confrontation of them in 22 and 23. So look down in the text, and we see that, that Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in verse 22. Now we know from the, the context of the previous verses, verses 16 through, through 21, that Paul was teaching of, of the resurrection, the, the Christian message in the synagogues and marketplaces. 
in Athens, and then that some Greek philosophers heard him. And the text says, because of their, their interest in every new or, or novel teaching, they brought him to the Areopagus to teach, to, to proclaim this, his case, his, his message that he's proclaiming. Now, Athens is obviously a very famous city. It was a city that we could think of as, I think, of a, the hub of cultural and the intellectual elite in the ancient world. The great philosophers that we still study to this day, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, are all associated and taught in Athens. Now, when Paul is there, it's well past its heyday of, of influence in the world, but it's still a, a pretty big hub of, of intellectual, philosophical, and, and spiritual interactions in Rome. And the Areopagus specifically, which is also known as, as Mars Hill, you may hear it referred to as that, this place was a common public forum for these debates to take place. So Paul was taken there to, to give his case for this new religion that, that he was proclaiming. And what we see is that Paul begins his speech, but really throughout the speech and throughout his encounter, he confronts the Athenians. He confronts them. Specifically, he confronts them because of their idol worship. And that's really what, what his speech is seeking to refute, the practice of their pagan idol worship. But there is some debate on the, the nature of this confrontation. So some questions that have been presented and that you can think of as, as you read this text. Is, is, was Paul being winsome or antagonistic in his confrontation? Was he being nice or was he being mean? Or maybe somewhere in the middle. We read in verse 22 that, that Paul tells them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very Religious. So that word, those words, very religious, has, can have two different meanings. It can be viewed positively as a compliment. So religious in the sense of being a, a virtuous person. Or it can be viewed negatively as something like superstitious, following after myths, not being grounded. I would submit, knowing Paul, brilliant as he is, he could be using the word that the Athenians would interpret as a compliment, but that those that know him would catch on to his, his disdain for their pagan religion. We see him doing that in, in several places in, in his writings. Regardless, it's clear that Paul is confronting the philosophers of Athens in their idol worship. But it seems clear he's not going out of his way to be overly inflammatory or, or provocative. Or hostile. In fact, in several aspects that, that we're going to see in his speech, he's attempting to find common ground with, it, with them, or what you could call points of contact with the pagan worshipers as avenues to proclaim the gospel to them. I think we can see this starting in verse 23. Paul says, as he was passing through, walking around Athens, he saw there, there are many objects of worship, so he's referring to their idols there, and also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. So this was an altar that 
was to worship a God that can't be known, obviously, given the name. And Paul uses this altar, he uses it as an opportunity. He sees an open door here for him to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the one true God that can be known. But notice, he doesn't come out and say, you know that, that altar to the unknown God? That's really stupid. You guys are a bunch of morons for believing that. Right? That's, that's not his approach in his communication. But he says, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you the one true and living God, which is what his speech will entail, proclaiming who this God is, who the true God is. So he's finding that point of contact with their, their pagan worship to proclaim the truth. And I think a key lesson to take away from Paul's approach here is that Paul is not afraid to confront the Athenians in their sin, in their, in their idol worship. And just remember for a moment the context, the, the place where he is at. He is in the, the hub of philosophical t- debate. He is amidst the, the intellectual elite of his day. And he's calling out these philosophers in some sense because of their ignorance. Again, he's not doing this in an inflammatory way, but he is confronting them. He's saying, you worship a God that can't be known. Meaning the Athenians admit they are ignorant of that God that this altar is erected for. They don't. They they can't know him. This is important because ignorance for the Greek philosophers was a cardinal sin. So Paul is definitely poking here at what the Athenians hold most dear, their their knowledge, their intellect, the ability to know things. And he's saying, I know something that you don't know, that you, men of Athens, the intellectual elite of the day, know nothing about. So he is confronting them, make no doubt about that. But he isn't necessarily hostile. Even as we see a a little before our verses in verse 16, that Paul was provoked. I think the word means angered. He was angered by the idol worship of the Athenians. So what we see with Paul is that his righteous anger did not lead to hostility towards the Gentiles. He is collected. I think we could say he's wise in his speech. He's thoughtful. He's careful in what he says. This is clearly a man that is not unhinged. And yet, by his proclamation of the truth and a calling to account of false worship, he does not back down from confronting the Athenians in their error. So this balance of, on on the one hand, bold confrontation, and on the other, wise engagement. It's a good model for us to follow as we think about our evangelism. Because it calls us away from from cowardice. When we're tempted to to not confront non-believers and their sin, or, or not willing to call evil what God calls evil, even in the public sphere, which we must do as witnesses to Christ. 
So maybe you've been there. You, you know, you just want to keep the peace at work. You don't really want to go there and, and confront your coworkers' unbelief. Or you're, you're at the family dinner and you just don't want to confront. You don't want to have that conversation this time. I think we need to realize that, that our proclamation that there is one true God, that proclamation in itself will necessarily lead to confrontation. We proclaim an exclusive message that salvation comes only through, through one man. No other ways to be saved. There is one God. That by itself will offend. The proclamation of the truth will inevitably confront sinners and offend. And here's the point. That's okay. Because we see with Paul, confrontation does not mean hostility. Paul shows us that it's good to be wise and, and not provocative in our confrontation of unbelief, and yet he still confronts it, always. So I think that should be the, the pattern of our lives as we seek to confront. Now, now Paul is going to go from that point of contact, their, their pagan altar to the unknown God in, in verse 23, and Paul is then going to proclaim, he's going to preach of the true God. He's going to give a speech. And he's going to present a case to the Athenians against their idol worship, which is our, our second main point, Paul's, Paul's case to the Athenians, which we see in verses 24 through 29. You know, it's been said by, by a lot of Christians throughout the ages, but, but this speech from Paul is brilliant. And that's an understatement. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's, it's brilliant for a lot of ways. It's, it, the speech has been a key text in the church's understanding of, of apologetics, which is the, 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 the task of defending the faith through argument, through argumentation. And what we see is that Paul seamlessly weaves together biblical and theological truth with their own pagan sources to make his argument. And what makes the speech so brilliant is that he's teaching about God. He's teaching about the nature of God. He's teaching about humanity's relationship to God, all while pointing out the deficiency of the philosopher's pagan practices. So he's doing so many things at once here, and he's doing it extremely well. So his confrontation of the Athenians is also teaching the Athenians. And it's also teaching us, as we read it, about the one true God. Paul starts his case in, in verse, verses 24 and 25, proclaiming that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. We read there, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Our God is the transcendent God. He stands categorically above and apart from his creation. 
He does not live in, in temples made by man. Verse 25, Paul proclaims that God is completely self-sufficient. Meaning he's in need of, of absolutely nothing. And in fact, he's the source of all life. God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is the creator of all and the sustainer of all. And he's in need of nothing. Completely self-sufficient. Humans can provide God nothing that he needs. God is not dependent in any way on his creation. And the creation, including humanity, including each one of us, is completely dependent on him for life, for breath, for our hearts beating every second. Now, one key aspect of these verses is that Paul's clearly grounding his argument in the, his Christian worldview. And more specifically, he's arguing from the, his knowledge of the Scriptures. So it's very likely Paul has a text like what, what Blake just read for us in Isaiah 42, 5 on his mind. The text reads, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. So it's clear that, that not just this statement, but every statement Paul makes is rooted in the Bible, which is important for us as we think about our engagement with the lost, with our cultural engagement. So I think it means we should not be ashamed, we should not be nervous about using the Bible in our engagement with the lost. In fact, Christians must use the Bible because our whole worldview, the whole way we view everything, is entirely shaped by the Word of God. So even if we don't cite chapter and verse, the way we view things as Christians is rooted in Scripture. There is no finding neutral ground through, through with, with the pagan or a secularist in the sense that we just abandon the Bible when we talk to them and speak through, through their language, through pure reason or, or anything. That's not what Paul does at all here. He is deeply rooted in the Scriptures. He has a completely biblical worldview and he presupposes the scriptures are true and they're important for the Athenians to hear. And he's not afraid to bring the truths of the scriptures, to bring these, these deep theological truths to their minds and to use them in his proclamation to the Gentiles. The simple point of application, we shouldn't either. This should be our practice as well. We should not be ashamed to bring God's word on the floor when we're seeking our lost neighbors. In verse 26, Paul moves to the, to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, specifically God's sovereignty over all people. We read there, He made from one man, that is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. 
So as we saw in, in verse 25, God is not served in any way by mankind. He, he doesn't need creation. He doesn't need man. And yet he, he directs all of man's affairs. He's in control over all things. He's in control over all nations, all peoples. He determines on a macro level when nations rise and when they fall. He determines the boundaries of their borders. He's in control of it all. And on a micro level, I think we could say, he determines where each person in all the nations lives and when we live. He's utterly in control over his creation. It's again the clear teaching of the Old Testament in a place like like Deuteronomy 32.8 says this explicitly. And we see also in this verse that a a part of Paul's case to the Athenians is to proclaim that all of humanity comes from one source, one one man. Said another way, we're, we're all descendants of Adam. Therefore, all of humanity has a fundamental commonality. That's what what Paul's getting after. We have a fundamental commonality in our relation to the original man, Adam. We're all God's offspring in that way. We're derivative of God, which will come up in a moment in Paul's argument. But notice the, the reason God has appointed and determined the times and the locations of the nations of this world and the people in those nations, why God has done that, why he has determined where we dwell. But we see in verse 27 that they, that is humanity, should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So the end goal for humanity is not just that we simply exist, The purpose of our existing in in nations and where God has placed us and having homes and the specific time periods where God has placed us, the whole reason for that is that we would seek God, that we seek to know Him. Humans exist to find God, to know God. It's why we're all here on this earth. Paul uses interesting language in, in verse 27. First, we, we, you can notice the word perhaps. So in this seeking of God, perhaps they can feel their way toward him and find him. I think we need to be very clear here. This text is not saying that a non-believer can find God on their own, in their own power, their own intellect, their own capacity to reason. So this is not the case of what, what Paul's saying here. It's not, it's the clear opposite teaching of, of a place like Romans 1, which Paul wrote. And I think we can see this actually in the verb in verse 27 of, of, of feel their way. Again, notice our, our translation, at least the ESV, puts the word perhaps there before the word. It's good because the verb is communicating a wish or purpose that doesn't necessarily occur doesn't necessarily happen. In other words, the very word Paul uses to communicate to us that that it communicates to us that 
fallen humanity won't seek God and find them and be successful. It's, it's, it's communicating a desire or a wish. Also, the, the words feel their way can mean something like groping in the dark. That's what it's trying to communicate. Groping in the dark or, or as one without sight. So I'm sure you may have had the experience of sleeping in a room that you're not familiar with. Maybe at a hotel, and you need to get up in the middle of the night, you know, to go somewhere to get something. And what happens? You can't see anything, right, because it's pitch black. So you, you walk through the room. You don't know your surroundings, so you, you run into the chair. You fall over the ottoman. You wake up your whole family. It's a whole ordeal. Right? This is kind of the same idea that, that Paul's using with this language, the same image that they were groping. They're trying to find their way in the dark. That lost humanity is to seek after God, but they're feeling after him as, as someone groping in the dark. Meaning, simply, it won't be successful. But that clarification is really not Paul's point in, in his argument. He's still building his case here to the Athenians. And his point is the end of verse 27, that God is not very far from each of us. He, he is imminent. He is close to his creation. So Paul, thus far, is saying God is both completely transcendent, the maker and sustainer and ruler of all things, and he's close, he's near to every human. He is in control of, of all of our lives. We can find him, meaning we can, we can be in relationship with him. In continuing to, to build his case, Paul does something very interesting in verse 28. He cites two pagan sources. So two sources that, that his audience would be very familiar with, and he uses them as evidence for the, the argument he's making, for the point he's making. That humanity comes from God, and God is near to humanity. Now, this decision from Paul to use these sources, these two pagan sources, has brought a, a ton of debate, a lot of debate in the history of the church. Debates over what is appropriate or a trustworthy source to, to use in our evangelism, to consult in, in, in cross-cultural missions. Debates over epistemology and the, how non-believers can know things, no right things, no true things, and how they can even teach those things. How, how does that work in their fallenness? And those are very important debates, but I don't want to go down those paths this morning. What I will say, which I think is clear from the whole of our text, as I said earlier, Paul is clearly making a point of contact with the pagans. He's essentially saying, hey, look, even the guys that, that you like, that you respect, they're saying a similar thing to what I'm saying. They're, they're saying what I'm arguing. So he's using these sources for the sake of his proclamation. But think about what this means. Paul is brilliant, obviously. He, he's learned enough to know the sources that his audience would, would be familiar with so that he can utilize that information. He can use that source to proclaim the truth. But he's using their sources to actually confront their error. 
So this is not some glowing endorsement of pagan poetry and philosophy. It's not what is, is happening here. But he does again seek to find common ground for his own purposes, for his argument. So as we're thinking with, about our engagement with the lost, just as we should not be ashamed to use the Bible and, and theological truths in our evangelism, in our engagement with the lost, we should also seek common grounds of connection with the lost, just as Paul does here. But listen, this is important. Paul is using these sources not simply to just build a bridge of, of commonality with the pagans so that they could feel more comfortable or they'd feel more at home to like take the tension of the confrontation away. That's not what Paul's doing here. No, he's using the pagans' true words to confront them on their idolatry. So I would urge us, we should not use Paul's methods here, use Paul's strategy to create a method of cultural engagement that becomes saturated with the world and with worldly philosophy and with worldly thinking for the purpose of making the world feel at home or, or more comfortable. Right? That is a strategy in some evangelical circles, to be well acquainted with the world, to know the sources of the world, so as to make the world comfortable with the ultimate goal of winning them to Christ. I think that is a dangerous strategy, and it's not what Paul's doing in this text. Paul is not compromising for a second his biblical convictions. He's not even trying to use these, these pagan sources to gain an audience or even to, to put his audience at, at ease. Now he's utilizing them for his purposes, which is confronting the Athenians in their error. So as we think about making points of contact with our lost neighbors, we need to be aware of the, of the lure of worldliness, of, of worldly philosophies. We must be on guard against, against false worldviews. But we can listen, and we should listen. We should hear where the lost people in our lives, where their thoughts overlap, where they, they connect with the true biblical worldview. And then we can press on those for the purposes of proclaiming the gospel. So we're, we're making the points of contact, but the ultimate end goal is for the proclamation of the truth. In verse 29, Paul makes his point that, that he started all the way back in, in 24. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of and imagination of man. So Paul's using this idea of, of humanity being God's offspring, right, which he got from this, this pagan source, and he's affirming it because it's true. As he just said, all humanity comes from one source, all from Adam, and we are God's offspring. All of humanity are, are God's children in this non-salvific sense. So Paul is saying, when, if we then are God's children, his offspring, and we are living and moving beings, we're conscious with feelings, we have emotions, 
if that is us, and we come from God, then wouldn't God be like that in some way? I think that's the, the nature of his argument here to the Athenians. If we're living, breathing beings, and we are God's offspring, then it makes no sense that God, the divine being, would be like a gold, silver, or stone statue. Essentially saying, you ought not think that way, philosophers, because it doesn't make sense. Idol worship doesn't make sense. That's Paul's argument, which again ties into his larger case to the Athenians against their pagan practices. But I want us to know something very important. Paul's not making this case to the philosophers merely to just win a debate. He's not even primarily concerned about defeating their errors so that the truth will prevail. Paul wants them to be saved. Salvation is Paul's primary concern for the Athenians. And that leads to our, our last point, Paul's call to the Athenians. Paul's call to the Athenians. We read in verses 30 and 31, Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a, man, by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul proclaims to the Athenians, God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin. I think he's specifically calling them to repent of their, of their pagan idol worship, to turn from it and to trust, trust and worship the one true living God. Paul wants the Athenians to be saved from their sin and specifically saved from the judgment that is coming for their unbelief. And Paul is proclaiming this by way of warning. He's giving them strong warnings, which is important to note. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Times of ignorance is a difficult phrase to interpret, but I think we can just say it's a shorthand phrase for the times before Christ had come, where God had uniquely revealed himself to his old covenant people, Israel. This was the time of ignorance you could think of for the Gentiles, for the pagan nations. This time is now over since Christ has come. God's revelation is now to all people through the sending of His Son. His, his revelation is universal. His revelation is complete. Paul, again, is probably also using that, this phrase of ignorance to, to, to press on, to poke at, and confront the Athenians' prideful view of their knowledge. Now, Paul says God overlooked these former times. It's a... What, what, what does that mean? He overlooked them. I think it's important we're clear. He's not saying that there was no punishment for sin or for idolatry, even eternal punishment for pagans before the coming of Christ. It's clearly not true. It flies in the face of, of Paul's and the whole Bible's teaching. But God overlooked the times of ignorance in the sense that he did not punish idolatry as severely as he could have in the world because of their ignorance. I think that's what he's trying to communicate here. But the point is, 
That time's over. That time's over because Christ has come. In verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, all people in righteousness. This is clearly referring to the future day of the Lord, the final day of judgment when Christ shall return to to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the man Paul is referring to in verse 31. Who else is appointed by God to judge the world? Who else has risen him from the dead? Jesus is the judge. And it's very interesting that, that Paul cites the resurrection of Jesus as the evidence that this final judgment will surely come. He tells the Athenians, He, that is God, has given assurance to all, that is humanity, by raising Him, which is Jesus, from the dead. So the, the resurrection, we often rightly think about providing us of our, our assurance for eternal life. Being evidence for the defeat of death, which is our great hope in the the gospel. It's our great hope in this life. But the resurrection also proves and confirms something else, according to Paul. And to the whole world. That God is going to judge everybody. God is going to judge everybody. And he has set a day where he will bring history to a close. And you want to know how that you can know that day is coming? Because Jesus isn't in the tomb. That's what Paul's saying. Now he's telling this to non-believers. He's telling this to pagans, which proves to us that the resurrection is, is God's confirmation to all people that he has judged. This is not just a message for Christians. This is a message for all people. So Paul calls the Athenians to... Repentance, to turn from their idol worship, to turn from their sin, to be found in Christ when the judgment comes, because in Christ is the only safe place to be when the wrath of God comes. So he urges them to stop worshiping dead idols who provide nothing and turn to worship the living God, the true God, the God who who rose from the dead. Or just think of their true idol was philosophy. And they were holding on to the teachings and, and, and practices of, of their great heroes, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Right, where are they? They're still in the grave. Paul is urging them to give their life to the one who is risen. The one who is, has defeated death. And the key here for us is I think we get insight into Paul's heart. He has a real concern for the eternal state of the Athenians, for the ones that he's debating against, the ones he's proclaiming the truth to. Or else he wouldn't call them to repentance. Again, he's not primarily concerned with defeating them, defeating them in this very public philosophical debate. That's not his primary concern. He wanted them to repent and receive eternal life. And brothers and sisters, our evangelism, our apologetics, our our cultural engagement, they all have a point. 
There are means to an end, and that end is salvation of the lost, a call to repentance to the lost that we're proclaiming to. So we need to be very careful of making cultural engagement and evangelism the ultimate end, because if we do that, we can be tempted down a lot of unhelpful paths. We can get caught up at, at making a perfect argument against X religion. We're formulating the perfect response that our culture will understand and accept. And at this time, because I formulated it this way, they'll for sure accept Jesus. And those are not bad things. But we can't lose the plot. We can't lose the purpose, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To proclaim that anybody who turns from their sin and entrusts in their heart and proclaims with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that anyone who does that will be saved, that will be found safe from God's wrath on the judgment day. And that is what we're to call our lost neighbors to, to repentance. That's our ultimate goal in cultural engagement. That is our aim, and that's exactly what we see Paul doing in Acts 17. So to answer our, our original question, as we live in this, this changing culture, what are Christians to do? What are, what are we to do in this room? Well, with Paul, we are to confront the idols of our day, which may very well soon be actual stone and inanimate objects. Or it may be the all-too-common idols of wealth, sex, self-fulfillment, personal glory. Whatever the idols of our day, we're to be faithful to confront them. And to use the Bible, to use our, our biblical worldview to engage and, and persuade the lost to flee from their sin. To, to abandon their idols. And we're to call them to, to trust in Christ. To repent and to warn of the coming judgment they will face. That is our strategy. Brothers and sisters, that is our guidebook, really no matter what the culture is that we live in. Our methods will not change. Because God's word will not change. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this word, the word that is our guide, that, that gives us the practices and the principles to know as we do live in a changing culture. But I pray that we, we would not fall into despair or, or apathy, but that we would be faithful to proclaim the truth, to proclaim your gospel, and that as we engage with the, the loss that you bring into our lives, that we would be faithful to confront, confront where their sin is, to do so wisely, to do so in love, and that we proclaim the true gospel that is only found in your word. We proclaim the truths of your word. And we do ask that, that by 
by our proclamation that you would, would save many. You would turn from their sin, turn them from their sin to trust in you for your glory. Make us faithful to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand one more time as we